Welcome to episode two of Fresh Courage Take, a podcast recounting the trials and faith displayed by women during the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and hoping to inspire your faith and courage as you face difficult circumstances in your life. We want to go beyond the woman's stereotype and show you her trials, weaknesses, and difficulty. This is your host, Elizabeth, and today we're going to be talking about Mary Fielding Smith. She has a few well-known stories you might have heard of her, one of which being that on her way to Utah, she miraculously healed an ox by priesthood power, and the other story is um, that of her refusing to not pay tithing that was told by her son, the prophet Joseph Fielding Smith. But before we begin today, I wanted to start by reminding you that the women that we talk about in this podcast are not perfect. They have many flaws and weaknesses, some of which are recorded and some of which are not. But we do need to remember they are wonderful examples of faith in certain stories of their life. A good um, church historian and author wrote that we should refuse the trap of thinking that a selective, simplified stereotype of a woman is the whole woman. It would be easy for us to think that Mary Fielding Smith, with her great faith, never had any problems that she couldn't work out simply and effectively with the Lord's help. If she was perfect in faith, she must have been perfect in every other aspect of her life as well, particularly with her children and marriage. After all, she married the church patriarch and her son became president of the church. How successful can you be? We'll see in this podcast today that... She did have a lot of outward success in her life, but she wasn't perfect. She had problems and trials just like the rest of us. Um, that being said, the theme of the podcast and one theme of her life recorded by her biographer was that she had a spirit of go. When anything came in her life, whether it be hardship or joy, the spirit would tell her to go, to move forward, to continue forward, which is consistent with the theme of our podcast, Fresh Courage Take continue on, count your losses or your joys and successes, and keep pushing on. As a general characteristic of her life, Mary Fielding Smith can be counted as one of the greatest women of modern times. She was a charming gentle lady and the wife of patriarch Hiram Smith. Okay, let's get started with learning more about where she was born and her life leading up to her marriage. She was born on July 21st, 1801 in Bedfordshire, England. She was raised on a farm in a Methodist family, and her parents were very well respected in their community. She was born into a home of pious, refined, intellectual, and educated families, and she was described as being trim, straight, dark-haired, and dark-eyed, with delicately blooming cheeks and finely molded, graceful fingers, clad in dainty silks of modern grace. I'm sure... Um, she was pressured into marriage, and I'm not sure if she loved her life in England, but regardless of what happened, we aren't here to speculate. When she was 33 years old, she moved to Canada with her brother and sister. They had moved previously, and she went and followed them to Toronto, Canada, and this was in 1834, so she was 33 years old. Two years after arriving in Canada, Parley P. Pratt taught her and her brother and sister in Canada, and they were baptized. Following that, um, Mary moved down to Kirtland and wrote letters to her sister Mercy. This was significant because her letters to Mercy and Kirtland are only one of two sources we have about what happened in 1837 in Kirtland, and they're a valuable, valuable resource to historians. While she lived in Kirtland, she was still a single woman. She worked as a teacher, and she still she refused to marry. She had a couple of offers of marriage throughout her life, and she turned them all down. But 
when in 1837, um, the prophet's brother Hiram, he had already married. He had a family. His wife was named Jerusha, and they had five kids. And in 1837, Hiram was called away on church business to Missouri, leaving behind his very, very sick wife. And while he was gone, Jerusha ended up passing away and leaving behind all the children. Hiram immediately left back for home, but he missed the funeral, and he had lost the love of his life and was so distraught. Um, when When Joseph got back to Illinois, he said that it was the will of the Lord that Hiram should marry again and take as a wife a young English convert, Mary Fielding by name. So Mary had already associated with the Smith brothers. They knew her. But it came by revelation that Mary was to marry Hiram and become the stepmother to his five children. You'd think now that she was married with five children and became an immediate mom, things would get easier. But from this point on, things just got harder and harder. Their marriage came relatively soon after Jerusha had passed away, and their marriage was not perfect. In the beginning, Hiram saw her as just a stepmother, and things were tricky as their families merged. Mary had ideas of how she wanted to raise her kids. The children missed their mother, who had just passed away. Hiram wasn't home a lot because he was on church business. And this is the circumstances in which Hiram and Mary tried to figure out their relationship in relationship with the children and their expectations of what husband and wife would be. In May 1839, Hiram moved his family to Nauvoo, and this is where Mary stayed until they were expulsed from Nauvoo. When they got to Nauvoo, Hiram became the assistant president to the Prophet Joseph Smith, and he was on constant church business. He was very, very busy. And as being a church leader in these times in the Nauvoo era, there were a lot of accusations and claims against the Prophet and his family, and there was a lot of times that Joseph had to flee to escape being caught, but one such time, Hiram and Joseph were captured by local militia and government officers and were put in jail. And there's a story that tells about Hiram. After he had been captured, they gave him all of 10 minutes to go home and to collect his things before they sent him to Liberty Jail. And here's the story of what happened when Hiram saw Mary again after being captured. During the awful moment with Hiram standing with bayonets at his back, Mary was called upon to endure a devastating shock to her nervous system as well as extreme anguish of soul. The sight of him standing in manacles before his door, rumpled, unshaven, and pale from his ordeal, definitely was enough to unnerve completely a wife whose first child was about due. They could not speak. He could not give her an encouraging word, touch her hand, wipe away her tears, nor give her a parting kiss. The scene was rare drama, silent drama, filled with torture and pain for both of them expressed in the anguished gaze of two people whose hearts were breaking for each other. Thus bedeviled, Hiram read the suffering in Mary's soul, knowing her situation, anxiety of mind over her coming travail, family wants, and her great need for him at this time. They might not see each other again. It was an intense experience they were called upon to endure. While Hiram was in Liberty Jail, Mary gave birth to their first child, Joseph Fielding Smith, but she was sick for weeks and months. Family helpers took care of, helped take care of the family and the chores, and she said during this time she was sustained by the words in Psalms 23-4, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Once Hiram was released from jail, she got feeling better before he was released, and once he was released, she wrote a letter to her brother, and she said, Yeah, I do not feel in the least discouraged. Now, though, oh, also her sister had moved to Nauvoo with her at this point. So this is why she was writing a letter to her brother. Okay, so yet I do not feel in the least discouraged. Now, though my sister and I are here together in a strange land, we have been enabled to rejoice in the midst of our privations and persecutions that we were counted worthy to suffer these things so that we may, with the ancient saints who suffered in like manner, inherit the same glorious reward. If it had not been for this hope, I should have sunk before this. But blessed be the God and rock of my salvation. Here I am, and am perfectly satisfied and happy, not having the smallest desire to go one step backward. The more I see of the dealings of our Heavenly Father with us as a people, the more I am constrained to rejoice that I was ever made acquainted with the everlasting covenant. Oh, may the Lord keep me faithful until my change comes. These are powerful words, considering what she just went through, giving birth to her first child without her husband nearby, in prison, in horrible circumstances. And she, and she said that she didn't want to go backwards, but she was perfectly satisfied and happy because she knew Heavenly Father's dealing with his people, and she rejoiced that she'd become a member of the church. She had to hold on to this because after a few years after the experience at Liberty Jail, the, her worst nightmare even worse than Hiram's being captured and put in prison, came to fruition. On June 27, 1844, Joseph and Hiram were martyred at Carthage Jail. In the early morning hours of the next day, June 28, George D. Grant knocked at the door of Mary Fielding and her family and told her that Joseph and Hiram had been murdered. According to her daughter, Martha Ann, her mother fell back against the bureau. Brother Grant took her and placed her in a chair, The news flew like wildfire through the house. The crying and agony that went through that house and the anguish and sorrow that were felt can be easier felt than described, but that will never be forgotten by those who were called to pass through it. The moment when Mary and her children came to the mansion house to see the body of their fallen husband and father was described by an observer. Mary trembled at every step and nearly fell, but reached her husband's body, kneeled down by him, clasped her arms around his head, turned his pale face upon her heaving bosom, and then a gushing, plaintive wail burst from her lips. Oh, Hiram, Hiram, have they shot you, my dear Hiram? Are you dead? Oh, speak to me, my dear husband. I cannot think you are dead, my dear Hiram. She drew him closer to her bosom, kissed his pale lips and face, put her hands on his brow, and brushed back his hair. Her grief seemed to consume her, and she lost all power of utterance. Her daughter Martha Anns remember from that day on, her mother never seemed to smile. How sad and sorrowful my darling mother used to look. She scarcely ever smiled again. If we could get her to laugh, we thought we had accomplished quite a feat. Never would she bridge the awful void in her life, nor the utter loneliness caused by the loss of her dear one. Still, sweet was her satisfaction, sanctified in her soul, for having had him as a companion for a few years and having borne him two children. Being a sensible woman, she knew that this was no time for self-pity nor bitterness. There was work to do. With determination, she marshaled her forces and brought to bear the full resources of her mind to meet her many problems. Her primary preoccupation was obtaining sufficient food for her large family. uh, Very shortly after Hiram's martyrdom, Heber Kimball married Mary at Nauvoo as part of a way to take care of her, but it wasn't enough. She had to do her part to get food for her family and provide for them. 
until the Saints left Nauvoo in 1848. However, things did not get easier from here. She had to send her eldest son ahead with a different company to Salt Lake so that he could prepare the way for her. And then when she did that, her uncle-in-law actually came to her house and berated her for doing so and sending him away and claiming that she didn't love him because he sent because she abandoned him when he was going through the difficulty of losing his father. This was Jerusha and Hiram's oldest son, by the way. But she held her ground when the uncle-in-law came and explained her position. And thereafter, she went to winter quarters, and her oxen were stolen, and her cattle and horses died in the severe winter, and these were necessary to make the trip west in safety. So they found more. Mary's son Joseph, who was nine years old, was given the job of driving one of the ox teams. Because they didn't have enough oxen to pull their wagons, they tied two wagons together and used their few oxen to pull both wagons at once. Though this slowed their progress, they managed to make it the 27 miles from Winter Quarters to the Elkhorn River, where their company was forming and where they hoped to obtain more oxen or horses. The man who supervised the cattle and the company urged Mary to stay behind, saying, if you start out in this manner, you will be a burden on the company the whole way, and I'll have to carry you along or leave you on the way. Undaunted, Sister Smith told him, I will beat you to the valley and will ask no help from you either. This is from her biography written by a man named Don Corbett. And he continued saying that things went quite along smoothly until they reached a point midway between the Platte and Sweetwater Rivers, when one of Mary's best oxen lay down in the yoke as if poison and all supposed he would die. All the teams in the rear stopped, and many gathered around to see what had happened. In a short time, the captain perceived that something was wrong and came to the spot. The ox stiffened in the throes of death. The captain blustered about and exclaimed, He is dead. There is no use working with him. We'll have to fix up some way to take this widow along. I told her she would be a burden on the company. But in this, he was greatly mistaken. Mary said nothing, but went to her wagon and returned with a bottle of consecrated oil. She asked her brother Joseph and James Lawson to administer to her fallen ox, believing that the Lord would raise him. It was a solemn moment there under the open sky. A hush fell over the scene. The men removed their hats. All bowed their heads as Joseph Fielding, who had been promised by Heber C. Kimball that he would have power to raise the dead, knelt, laid his hands on the head of the prostrate ox, and prayed over it. The great beast lay stretched out and very still. Its glassy eyes looked nowhere. A moment after the administration of the animal stirred, its huge hind legs commenced to gather under it, its, ha- its haunches started to rise, the forelegs strengthened, the ox stood and without urging started off as if nothing had happened. This amazing thing greatly astonished the onlookers. They hadn't gone very far when another ox, Old Billy, lay down under the exactly same circumstances. This time it was one of her best oxen, the loss of which would have been very serious. Again the holy ordinance was administered with the same results. Miraculously, Mary and her family made it to the Salt Lake Valley, where she lived for a few years before dying in September 21st, 1851. She was, so yeah, she was only in Salt Lake for a very little short period of time, but when I tried to imagine Mary in the spirit world with Jerusha and Hiram, I can only imagine the reunion of Jerusha and Mary. Jerusha just thanking Mary for her work in saving and taking care of her family. What a sweet relationship they must have. So at the funeral, there was no really, not really a formal tribute in terms of a biography because she died at a relatively young age. 
And then 30 years later, her son, Joseph F. Smith, published a faith-promoting story about her. So here's, I'm going to tell some tributes. I'm going to read some tributes to Mary Fielding Smith that kind of encapture what I hope to convey with this podcast. So the, her biographer, Don Corbett, said, This one pioneer, perhaps more than all the others, seems to epitomize all the magnificent Mormon women who crossed the plains to Utah and helped build the new Zion. Hers is an image rooted in outstanding deeds and accomplishments. And then another writer, her name was Susie Young Gates, who in 1916 was a writer and woman's right advocate in Utah, also wrote about Mary Fielding Smith. And she said of Mary, Mary strengthened Hiram's trials. She sweetened his daily life with her wifely ministrations, and above all, she relieved him of every anxiety connected with the care and rearing of his five motherless children, for the heart of her husband could safely trust in her. And then she continues, When the scenes and sufferings incident to the martyrdom fell upon the families of the prophet Joseph Smith and his devoted brother Hiram, who may tell the agony of suspense, the torture of fear which shook the woman who waited in vain for the release from prison, which had been miraculously given so often before? Few thought that the arrest would terminate fatally, for the prophet had been so imprisoned and hauled into courts over forty times by his enemies. Yet this time, the prince and powers of the air held sway, and the blood of the martyrs cried from the ground of Illinois. Martyrdom tested Mary's commitment. Who can guess the gloom and misery which filled the home of Mary Fielding Smith when her husband was brought cold in death to receive the last rites from his friends? That here and now is the supreme test of that majestic spirit of the martyred patriarch's wife, Mary. Was she a true convert to the gospel as preached by Christ and afterwards revealed again to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith? And that's where I say yes. She stayed true to the gospel. She moved west. When the worst circumstances of her life befell her, her spirit told her to go, to move on, to keep walking, and to not listen to those who didn't think that she could do it. Her son, Joseph Smilding V, gave her a beautiful tribute years after her death, and he said, Oh, how I love and cherish true motherhood. Nothing beneath the celestial kingdoms can surpass my depth, deathless love for the sweet, true, noble soul who gave me birth, my own, own mother. Oh, she was good. She was true. She was pure. She was indeed a saint, a royal daughter of God. To her I owe my very existence, as also my success in life, coupled with the favor and mercy of God. She truly was a perfect example, not a perfect, she was an example to her children of enduring when difficult circumstances arised, and having faith and trusting in God that he would take care of them, and he would watch out for them. I can only imagine the emotion and fear and circumstances that Mary Fielding Smith faced. But it reminds me of just going, just moving on. When things get hard, we take our count our losses and we keep going. We move west. We move cities. We just keep plugging along. And as if as a conclusion, I want to reiterate that Mary was not perfect, and neither was Amanda from the episode before. And for the episodes that are to come, none of these women were perfect by any means, and we are not to idolize them as saints, but we are to look to their examples of faith and courage and take them into our own lives and remember that we too pass through sorrows and the valley and shadow of death, but we also can have faith in that lo- in the God that sustained Mary, sustained Amanda, and, will sus- and has sustained the other members of the restoration of the church. So with that, no matter what you're facing, I hope you remember that you can have fresh courage take.
I'll see you next week. 